Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility presents the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman, exploring ideas with innovators, changemakers, business leaders, politicians, and activists. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by the Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Green Mountain Power. Delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont's schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. And nearly 700 VBSR business members who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Learn more at www.vbsr.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The COVID-19 pandemic has affected millions of people around the country and the world, but it's impacting some communities harder than others. Why is that? For answers, I turn to Dr. Nancy Krieger, professor of social epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Professor Krieger is an internationally recognized social epidemiologist who has over three decades of experience on activism involving social justice, science, and health. We recorded this conversation with Professor Krieger yesterday. Nancy Krieger, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. The mantra of the COVID-19 moment, if you watch TV or listen to public figures, is we are all in this together. But COVID-19 has, in fact, highlighted deep fault lines in our society that show how unequally and differently we're affected. Um, For example, in Illinois, 14% of the population is African-American, but Black Americans represent more than 40% of the state's confirmed coronavirus deaths. And we learned today that the Navajo Nation now has the highest COVID infection rates in the country. Mm-hmm. What accounts for these disparities? So I want to address both parts of what you're saying, because I do think that there is a fundamental point of our common humanity, which is really critical to understand here. Because there is so much scientific racism and attempts to racialize different populations and act as if they're biologically different that it's really critical to say that everyone who is a human is potentially at risk of being infected by this coronavirus, which seems to have done a very nice job of figuring out how to really get itself around in human populations in terms of particularly its skill at asymptomatic transmission and its attempts to, it's the fact that it doesn't really kill it kills a lot of people, but many people that get sick don't die. So it's not doing the kind of thing where, for example, with cholera, if you got cholera, 
you would see the stories of the older epidemics and even current ones where people, now there's treatment before it was understood what was going on, where people would be literally dying in the street in 24 hours of being infected. So it is one thing to say that here is a virus that has figured out a really good way to get into a lot of different people all around the world and infect them. And we as human beings are commonly at risk of this kind of infection if you think of us as biological organisms. But we're also never just biological organisms. We are social beings as well. And it's the social divisions in our society and the histories of structural injustice, particularly around racism. And in this country, there's no understanding this country without understanding the histories of enslavement and the histories of settler colonialism to understand who's at risk now for much higher likelihood of adverse exposure to the virus and then given exposed, become infected. And then also because of the pre-existing health inequities that existed in this country at the time that the SARS-CoV-2 virus came in, that exacerbates the likelihood of who will die. So there have to be an understanding of both. As human beings, we can be infected. The virus doesn't care. But once we're infected, and the likelihood of being infected is absolutely socially structured by histories and current realities of injustice in our society. So in terms of the exposure side, what matters is right now, who particularly is in jobs, has to go to work without sick pay, without paid leave, who are considered to be essential workers, but apparently not essential enough to provide adequate personal protective equipment, who are in public-facing jobs or in jobs that are in warehouses, which may not be publicly facing, or factories or the meat process slaughterhouses, where they are still in close proximity to other people. And the conditions are where they've been required to go to work, they have to work, they can't get sick leave, and there is inadequate protective gear, there is inadequate testing, and those are the people that are getting exposed now. And so those are people with high risk. There are also people at high risk, which is different kinds of categories, of the people who are healthcare workers at health facilities, but that also includes the janitors and the orderlies, the receptionists and others, not just the healthcare providers. And there's also been all the struggles about healthcare providers actually getting adequate protective equipment, personal protective equipment. And then there are also the people in nursing homes. And there again, even if the people in nursing homes may be predominantly, in my state at least, overwhelmingly older white individuals, nevertheless, the staff who are underpaid, overworked, not with adequate protective gear, working often in multiple jobs, going in and out of communities, they are people who are predominantly lower income people of color. And then there's a whole other set of communities that are also involved, which is a different kind of work, which is what's happening with regard to incarceration and detention. So the people inside who are the uh, inmates or the people who have been detained and charged um, are people who are not working as such, but they're also all the correctional officers who are, who are bringing virus in and out of facilities. And there's a lot of concerns about that. So just to say that that's where, if think about who's living in the civilian population, who is living in institutions, and which two kinds of institutions are most implicated in terms of nursing homes and their staff, and then correctional facilities and both the staff and the people in them. So those explain who's getting more likely to be exposed and who is unlikely to be able to stay home and be working at home safely protected from being out in the world, not driving a bus, not being in public facing jobs. 
And then, so that's the fundamental thing. And that's really important to emphasize because if you don't have exposure, you don't die from the disease. So to under, so what's key is what's, what is going on to try to prevent exposure? What is going on with adequate testing in communities? Free without fear. What is going on with adequate protection, provision of uh, personal protective equipment? If you have to work, that, that should be mandated as given by the workplace. And then also the way that a lot of workplace exposure legislation works is it's about what's at work. And it's up to the worker to figure out how to get to and from work. And it's up to the worker how to protect her or himself or themselves going back and forth to work. But the virus doesn't care about those kinds of distinctions of jurisdictional turf. So if you have somebody who has to go to work and take public transportation, how does that get connected up? So that's all on the exposure side. On the who gets sicker side, what does seem to be the case with COVID-19 is that people who have what are called pre-existing health conditions are at greater risk of having more fatal illness. And the kinds of pre-existing health conditions are twofold, and they're ones that are intimately bound with health inequities already in this country. So certain are uh, cardiometabolic diseases, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, also cancer, um, are, are, are uh, potentially asthma, not so clear, are what put people at higher risk of bad complications. And also it seems that body size does matter in terms of what the pressure is that's on the lungs. And that's the whole part about also, you know, putting learning to put people now on their stomachs as opposed to their backs. But the size you are also does matter. And the way in the U.S. is uh, most of the population is on average larger in body size compared to many other countries in the world. But that by itself is also socially structured. And the determinants around risk of that have everything to do with the kinds of incomes people have, what kind of food that they're able to purchase, what's sold in their neighborhoods, um, et cetera, et cetera. So those two things come together, the exposure and the likelihood of more serious illness if exposed and both are socially structured by historical and current injustice. Have any of the statistics um, surprised you, highlighted inequities that you didn't expect to see as intensely as they are? It wasn't necessarily obvious at the beginning. It wasn't clear who was going to be more likely to die if, if exposed. And I think that the emerging data on once it became clear what the existing health conditions were that increased risk of mortality, then no, that's not surprising. But this is all new information. And I think that, you know, it's clear that there's new things going on with children that people don't understand. And what the and there's a lot that has to be learned in terms of the, um, uh, the kinds of infections that some children are getting and the cardiovascular complications in terms of the clotting and possibilities of more strokes. I mean, there's a lot that's happening in terms of the specifics of the outcome that people are doing the fastest medical research and scientific research they can to understand. But once you understand that it's intersecting with those key aspects of pre-existing health conditions, then no, that's not surprising. Who's more likely to be vulnerable to be, um, to die if they get exposed. But I think there's a lot going on at younger ages that still remains to be understood. And on the exposure side, I think what's really important to keep in mind is that the, the corridors of exposure combine both affluence and, and, and economic immiseration. 
So it's important to also understand the class shift that has happened and is still happening in terms of who gets exposed, because some of the initial exposure is particularly with all the cases that came in from Europe, not from China, because China looks like the new studies are showing maybe more responsible for what first came in via Seattle and that outbreak. But the stuff that came into New York was primarily from different European countries. And that was often more affluent people who were able to travel. And then once it got in, it became community transmission. So I think what was going to happen is there's this shift. To, to, it's important to keep tabs on both because first, who could afford to do it, try do international travel? And secondly, who is exposed once it gets into the U.S.? And those are important pieces to keep in mind. And I think the data are not yet clear on exactly how that's happened, but needs more of a focus. You're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're talking in this half hour with Professor Nancy Krieger. She is a professor of social epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Talk about some of the public health measures that have been put in place, like lockdowns, like stay-at-home orders, and how those have a disproportionate or an inequitable impact on people. Well, the thing is, is that we are facing as a world, not just this particular country, a new virus for which there is no vaccine and no clear treatment and a certain proportion are dying. And there is the real threat of the overwhelming as has occurred in Italy, as occurred in New York, of overwhelming of hospital systems, which has spillover effects as well, because there are reports out of, you know, just came out in of. In Michigan, half the, the vaccination rate is way down for little kids. It is in my state, also in Massachusetts. There's concerns about people not getting care because the, of the concerns about what's going on at the hospitals. So I think it's important to understand that there are public health reasons for wanting to try to reduce the transmission of the virus, not only because of the likelihood of any individual getting infected, but also what it will do in terms of overwhelming health systems that people also need because people still are getting heart attacks, people are still getting strokes, people are still getting cancer, people still need to have their diabetes treated. So I think it's important to have a larger vision that's not just only focused on the COVID outcomes in terms of trying to understand what the rationale has been for trying to come up with ways to minimize infections. And so from that standpoint, what matters is not so much that there was a policy towards having uh, increased uh, potential to reduce physical uh, contact between people. It's the social policies that are behind that that were where the inequities are. And the inequities there are twofold. One, this pandemic is showing the absolute folly in the U.S., as has been long documented, of having A, one's health insurance tied to one's job because of all the people that were laid off and fired, and B, the travesty of unemployment compensation in this country. The fact that in Germany, for example, the strategy of government was to actually pay businesses to keep the, their workers on the payroll. So instead of doing it as a whole thing of losing your job, having to go apply for unemployment benefits, having to lose your health insurance because you're now unemployed if you had insurance through your job, the workers in Germany didn't have any of that. They continued their jobs and there was funding and the government just used the same money and put it into actually keeping them employed. So I would point to the inequities, not so much in terms of the fact of the idea of trying to maximize the likelihood of not having viral transmission, and instead would put the focus clearly on the inequities of how the unemployment has been carried out, policies have been carried out in this country, 
what the relief packages have been, the fact that there were all these benefits of tax cuts and corporate bailouts, much more so than actually getting the money to the people who actually need it. And the, you know, the reports in the paper today that not as very little of the money that was meant to go to individuals has gotten to them yet. So I would put the focus on the social failings as opposed to what the public health recommendations have been to try to minimize distance because, and I would say that this underscores two critical points. One is that this is why one has a social wage or welfare state, a state that actually is supportive of people that would, if we had a more equitable society, it would be able to encompass things like the fact that people do need healthcare and they do need to be able to stay home from work without risk of losing their job because of a, a public health emergency. So upheavals like this can result in big transformations, both good or bad. What would be a transformation that could come out of this that you think could most, you know, uh, positively address the kind of inequities that you see as a, a big feature of, of what it is currently? Well, on the one I mean, there's many, there's so many different angles to uh, that question. Um, I can speak to it from, you know, on the one hand, very small levels, which is that cities are now beginning to think about how to cut more cars out, keep them out, and have more bike lanes and do more changing how public transportation happens, which would be a great boon to people that rely on public transportation and also to have more sustainable economies. Um, it's notable that the air pollution rates have gone way down um, and that that's a good thing given environmental racism and what that means. So, and the fact that the US now this last week apparently was using more renewable energy than it ever has before and completely outclips the fossil fuels. So that's particularly coal. So that's a very good thing. But it also is pointing to the connections between so many issues, between the questions of borders, between the questions of health and who has access to health and the need for something that resembles universal health care and single payer or whatever the format would be about having no longer having your health insurance tied to your job, but actually just having it um, by virtue of living here. And also um, the, the issues about um, the, the connections between what's going on in institutions like jails and prisons and the outside world and the need for that kind of reform. But also in medicine, you're watching um, people being able to do telehealth now in ways that was not permitted before that could potentially increase access. So there's both these very small changes, but then also potentially big changes in terms of coalitions that are talking to each other to connect issues around public health, around economic security, around um, borders and uh, detention policies and all these. And I think it's just elevating those issues and also making clear that without addressing structural racism, you don't have solutions. Explain what you mean by that, how structural racism, environmental racism is a driver here of the outcomes we're seeing. So that has everything to do with what kind of uh, neighborhood conditions people have, the histories, for example, of redlining, how that's shaped the histories of residential segregation by race, but also by economic position in this country, what that's meant for the kinds of jobs people have, the incomes they have, the lack of affordable housing, the lack of a having sufficient living wage, what that means for the crowded household living conditions and multi-generational households, 
which is part of the issue because of also, for example, the inability to self-isolate if you're sick, if you're living in a very crowded household. And the, what our studies showed, which using measures others have not, is that household crowding, um, which in this U.S. census is really crowded. I mean, to become, a house, to become crowded is more than one person per room. And that doesn't count bathrooms and hallways, but it does count kitchens. So, for example, if you have a one-bedroom apartment, with one bedroom, one dining room, one living room, and one kitchen, that's only considered crowded if five or more people live there, which is really crowded. Right. So, so that it's pointing to all those connections of and who is in the jobs that are the essential workers that are low paid, little control over their workplace, not being given adequate protective personal equipment, not being given paid sick leave, not getting adequate health insurance coverage are predominantly people of color. Right. Those become the connections and are going back and forth to neighborhoods that are not having sufficient testing being offered. And all these come together to help create the conditions that are driving the statistics. And I want to flag one thing also, which is that there's also government responsibility, which I think ties back to a different part of structural racism that is not always as apparent, which is that the way the data are being presented by the CDC, it has taken incredible agitation to even get the data presented with any racial ethnic data. And even so, a lot of those data are still missing, which is very curious and weird, given that most U.S. health data are completely racialized. The data on race ethnicity are getting better for the deaths in terms of completeness of reporting, and that shouldn't be surprising because race ethnicity is a standard variable on the death certificate. But so too, for example, is education and occupation. And there is absolutely zero socioeconomic data on any of the public health uh, agency websites about looking at that. And that's why we've done the work that we've had to start to look at what the rates are of mortality, what the surge is in relation to racial and economic data, including racialized economic segregation, to bring out the fuller story of who is at risk here of exposure and also of death. So on this question of statistics, we're in a moment now where even the statistics have become politicized and it's being seen as a right-wing litmus test to sacrifice health for business. Where do you see this going? Uh, Where you know, the very basic tools of your trade, of epidemiology, are now contested. So this may sound quaint, but I actually do think that we live in a real world. And that when people start dying, it's noticeable. Even if the deaths are being papered over, as this disease starts to move into more communities, there's actually a very interesting study that just got posted looking at the cell phone data for people who came, for example, to the demonstrations against lockdowns in Michigan and then go back to more far-flung places. They may well bring COVID-19 with them. And the thing is, is that won't be known because this is called reality. Again, it takes time for the virus to manifest and to transmit. So you might not see that showing up as cases for another few weeks. You might not see it showing up as deaths for another four to six weeks, but it will show up. And so that becomes, I think, a part where where, where if people are in a place where the disease somehow seems more remote, because it's not spread evenly throughout the United States. I mean, you can look at any map and see what the geographic distributions are, how it started out with the coasts and the major airport cities, the big hubs like Chicago, um, and then is moving out from there to other places in the U.S. 
And that's not going to go away just because people want to ignore the reality of it. And this is something where it's also different than many of these endemic health inequities. So, for example, when you get heart disease or when you get cancer or uh, most cancers or when you get um, diabetes, it's not infectious. And it's not going to also uh, like potentially uh, make ill and kill the healthcare worker who's providing it. So it's very different. It's just like when people were making those initial analogies to this is just like there's more people that die of car crashes. Well, sure, there are car fatalities. However, it's not also like once the fatality has happened, the car gets up and starts chasing the emergency, the ambulance drivers and goes after them and tries to kill them or goes after the workers in the hospital. So there's a very different dynamic here because it's an infectious disease and the infection can occur at the workplace and healthcare workers are being badly affected, which then has implications for all the other things that healthcare workers as highly trained personnel will be doing to take care of people. So I think that people can do all kinds of political demagoguery and try to deny the realities of deaths, but the real life issues are happening of people at risk and at dying who are healthcare workers, as well as the people who are sick from this disease, is going to continue to have its ripple effects everywhere across this country. Finally, when this is over, whatever that looks like or however that happens, what is, in your view, one good thing that could come of this? An appreciation across the boards for the importance of government that provides fundamental services so that people can be healthy and thrive. Getting rid of government, having an austerity government doesn't do that. And gutting public health, instead of understanding that health is one of the things that we should value and do value, and that having an economy that's geared to having people thrive, as opposed to having a very small number of people make enormous fortunes, is a much better way to organize this world and also have this world be more sustainable for our species and others, and to understand what those connections are. Well, Professor Nancy Krieger, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you very much for having me. That was Dr. Nancy Krieger, a professor of social epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. 